Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this podcast, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Ewan Toe, who is a pharmacist about to step into general practice partnership. Ewan has got, in some respects, a broad portfolio, but all of her roles intertwine and connect beautifully. One of the questions that we get behind the scenes, people always want to know how other people manage their portfolio careers. And it's about choosing things that align and choosing to work with people who share the same values as you. Ewan knows her values. She knows the value that she can bring. Sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously, Ewan is putting herself into situations where she is advocating for herself. She's saying yes. She is acting on the recommendations and allyship of other people. She's spotting the opportunities and it ties back to her purpose of helping people and supporting people. And she said one of the criteria she uses when appraising opportunities is, will this give me a bigger platform to help more people? I really, really like that. We talked about her role as an equality and diversity and inclusion champion. She talks about what is in her toolkit of reflection. She talks about the importance of letting things go to help you move forward. And it was just a fantastic conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. And just a little bit of thought behind the scenes. In regards to this podcast, we are approaching at the time of recording 300 episodes. I absolutely love the podcast and debate and wonder, do I go really specific and only talk about healthcare, you know, like specific conditions and be really, really niche or only talk about primary care? Or do I keep it a leadership podcast or try to combine the two? Because I love these inspiring and practical leadership conversations. And I really like getting into the nitty gritty of some of the health conditions and some of the challenges the health and care sector has to face. And this conversation highlighted, I want to do both. So I hope that you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy the overall show. I always say, I don't expect you to listen to every single one because there is a few hundred now, but hopefully you like it enough to share it and maybe like it enough to keep coming back. So enjoy and I'll see you in the next episode. Hey, Ewan, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I am great. Happy to be here with you today. Could you introduce yourself to our audience and a little bit about what you do? 
So I am a clinical pharmacist. I started off in community, then move into primary care. I created my pharmacy team from scratch and then took on the role of clinical director in primary care in my PCN. And then in October, I will be also a general practice partner as well. Also, I do a lot of work in the system to address system inequality. So essentially, I created... Now we relaunch what we call the Connected Cultures, previously called the Bayman Allies Group. So we have a leadership group of that and we have a peer support network. So for people generally in primary care, ICB, social care, voluntary sectors, to tap into a safe and confidential space to talk about any difficulties, it then feeds into the leadership arm and then we feed into the chief exec board. Other bits that I do, I teach sometimes. I get asked to go to university to contribute to forming the new farm program. I do a lot of other work in the system, whether it's prescribing work or more strategic level work. So yeah, a little bit of everything. I get bored quite easily. So I want my week, I should say, or my month to be quite varied. And you are a fellow podcaster. I am. I am also the Imperfect Clinician co-host. So I co-host with Mike, my podcaster, who convinced me to start the podcast. I was very reluctant to start it initially, but we wanted to create the podcast to, I essentially got tired of telling people the same thing repeatedly. Everyone that comes to my door, everyone that I speak to. And because I was talking about it so much, my co-host said, why don't we record it and put it out there for people to understand that personal development is really important and it links to career development. Some people come in and say, I'm okay with emotions. I don't need to be creative. I just want to be more clinical. And I want to show people and let people understand the link. When you break through your own personal barriers, you will see advancements in your career as well. So we've got it out there. We are three seasons in. We just finished the third season and we have been a little break and then we'll come back again. Why did you call it the imperfect clinician? Because all of us, myself especially, I am trying very hard to embrace my own imperfection. I think perhaps one of the things I was working on is not to be perfect all the time. And so I think all of us have our own imperfections, but also those imperfections can be deemed as a superpower or your strengths. And so that's why we wanted to go on the journey with our listener whilst we do our work, work on ourselves and be better. We can help people around us and anyone who listens. You've got your kids pictures behind you. Could you give us some insight into your family life? Yeah, so I've got two young children, seven year old and five year old. And so they are quite a handful. I've got two very strong-minded girls, and so we usually have a lot of debate and negotiation. The kids and my husband, who's very hands-on, we're very family-oriented, so it's a balance always for me to be so passionate in what I do at work, but also I really care about my time with the children and wanting to be part of their journey growing up. So it's always a conversation with them, and I'm always very honest. For example, the partnership's coming up. How will that change my time spent with them? They're a little bit too young to understand what that actually means, but they understand what does it mean in terms of who's picking me up, who's playing with me, that sort of thing. So I want them to see, and I also want to model by example, 
what is it like to be a working parent? Because I think society sometimes will give you unrealistic expectation that you have to be a perfect parent and also perfect of every other role that you have. And we can't, we can't be all of that. But how do we manage that expectation? I want to show them that it is doable if you communicate it very clearly with everyone around you. If I was to say to you, what does work-life balance mean to you? Mm. What are your initial thoughts? Boundaries. This was one of the biggest things for me. And I would say boundaries and system. So by system, I mean what system is around me and for me. So system for me is what do I have in place to make sure that I am at tip top condition every single day? So for me, that looks like waking up in the morning, meditate and do any form of movement exercise. For me, sometimes it's yoga. When I go upside down on my hands, when I work on my handstand, that's a way for me to clear my head. And then before I start work, I'll go for a quick walk around the park. Being close to nature is one way for me. Sometimes I hug trees if I'm more stressed for the day. And then when I finish, I'll come back, put my phone away, stay with the kids, put them to bed. And then afterwards, spend some time with my other half. And then afterwards, I always stretch, meditate again before I go to bed. If I need additional, if I had a very difficult day, I always have some other things in my toolkit that helps me. So for me, whether it's sketching, whether it's playing the piano, whether it's doing other things that I really enjoy, whether it's journaling, and then I do my usual meditate, stretch, go to bed. So this is in terms of system that I have around me to make sure that I am in a good condition, food and sleep, hydration, all of that, every little bit adds up to make a significant difference to me. And then what system is in place for the family and what system is in place for work? That's also something that I'm always very keen to look into improve. And the other thing I talk about boundaries, I think when you take on a lot of different roles, and I'm sure a lot of us are juggling more than just one thing at a time, setting the boundaries that works for you and having the ability and the practice to say, no, this sort of time doesn't work for me or I need this. Sometimes even saying no to the kids and saying, this is the time that I need to clear my head because it's really important for me. I think also sets an example for the kids. How do they set their own boundaries when they're being pushed by their peers, for example? Your work commitments, despite how passionate you are, must always be trying to wrestle with one of your boundaries. Oh, constantly, because the demand doesn't stop. And also the expectation and the publicity of it, we constantly have to fight that back and say, this is so much we can do. I can see people are overwork or overstretch. How do we make sure it is a safe environment? And I think one of my role in taking on the partnership is to make sure I will have more influence and I will have more say in terms of how the practice will run for the people. Because I want to believe that at the end of the day, if I take care of my staff, the staff will take care of the patient because I can't see every single patient single-handedly. I have to rely on the team. So the well-being and how the team is resilient, that is what I'm going to be investing in. Not that they're not now, but this will be my main focus. In your new partnership, how many people are partners? So I have three previous partners, and then it will be me and another. So it will be five of us going forward. And before we hit record, I said to you, was it always in the plan? And you said, no. (laughs) How did it come about and what made you say yes? 
previously to my clinical director role and similar to this partnership role. This was initially offered to me and this was the second partnership offer that was put on my table. And the first one I said no because it wasn't aligned to my values. And this time it was in a practice that I work. I was already working there for four years. So it wasn't a place that I just sort of parachuted in. And I knew the people that I work with, leadership and the whole team, essentially. Plus the new partners, I know him really well. And all the other previous existing partners, I know them really well. So I think there is a level of what values do they hold as a practice and as leaders, and also what type of culture is in that place. And this is what made me say yes. What was their offer? Why did they want you? They saw my progression from being a clinical pharmacist to creating the team from scratch, even though they think, what are you doing sometimes? But they could see it yields financial gains and it actually shows in performance. So the things that you can measure, they saw it. But the initial bit of investment, when I look at people's personal development, when I look at what's stopping them from going forward, what fears are driving them, those are harder to measure because those are more analog skills. It's very hard to say, you know, which point are you? What's the percentage are you? And what's the percentage are you later? But they could see the things that can be measured. And so they go, oh, she's doing something. And we could see like the team's loyalty to her as well. For the clinical director role, I asked to be a joint clinical director because previously there were two. And the other one before she retired, I felt that she was my biggest ally. She brought me to meetings. She introduced me to the people in the system, created a role for me as strategic lead. And then when she retired, I said, some part of this I was already doing and primed to do. How do you feel if I take on the clinical director role with you? And then when I went around all of the other practices to involve everyone on board, the practice managers and also the GP partners, all of them said, yes, you'll be great at the role. We see you making a massive difference. So yes, go ahead. And so that was a big boost of confidence for me to actually hear that from the people that I work with day in, day out. And so the partners in this current practice that I'm in were one of those people and say, you're going to be really good because we could see the difference that you've made. By taking on the role, the practice managers are communicating with each other a lot more. Instead of being individual practice, we're slowly working towards a collaborative PCN work. And so I think all of that was happening in the background. They were observing. And also I was based in that practice most of the time. So I could see some changes in terms of sometimes in the clinical meeting, I lead a lot of the conversation. People sometimes come to me and ask me questions or GPs or other nurse practitioners will refer patients to me to be seen. So I think they could see clinically my skills, but also my leadership skills in terms of how people are happy to come to me and talk to me about their difficulties, because I always have that open door policy. I've been told, I don't know why, but we always tell you things that we don't mean to tell you, but we don't say it to anybody else. And so when the announcement was made to all of the practice team, their first reaction was, oh my goodness, that is so good. We feel really optimistic about the practice. We know we can come to you, very approachable, and you always made us feel heard. And so I think it was also a very big change in where I am in Lincolnshire. It's not common for non-GPs to be partners and probably not very common everywhere else. However, it was a very big mindset shift for existing partners to say, actually, we can consider how that's going to work. 
what strength is she going to bring in that's going to benefit the partnership? I think that shows me how open the partners are in this change. That for me is a great sign. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. This podcast could be two hours long. (laughs) There's just so many things I want to ask you, but I'll try to control myself. Okay. If your new partners had not have said to you, would you be a partner? Would you have ever thought that path was for you? Did that ever enter your mind? Yes, I probably would have asked. I'm the type of person where I don't have an end goal in mind. I just work very closely to my value and I take on the role that's aligned to my value and I know what's my purpose in life. I've got that clarity. So I don't go, I want to be X by this time. That's why it wasn't planned in that way. But I've always been very curious to what does it actually mean? So I've actually been to a few webinars about partners and just to understand what is it like, the dynamics, how is that going to change? And that is always in the back of my mind. And I never needed to consider it until the offer was given to me. And I went, now I need to properly think about it and go back to the, is it aligned to my values? Does it help me do what I want to do in life? And if the answer is yes, I'll take it on. Are you going to stop anything in order to make room for the partnership or not? Not at the moment. So I've created my own system where I will take on the partnership, but also retain a clinical director of the PCN. The podcast will still continue. And then leading the pharmacy is something that I am intending to do. So even before all of these partnership was on the table, leadership progression was always in my mind, but I needed to make sure that I give them sufficient time to gain experience. There's a hierarchy everywhere. Hmm. There's a hierarchy in general practice where you have the GP at the top and in a primary care network perspective, there's not many Hmm. non-GP clinical diagnoses and there aren't many at Hmm. all pharmacists, clinical directors. Have you experienced any challenges with your professional identity as a pharmacist when trying to roll out change amongst GPs? Less so in my primary care network. I think because when I first started, I was in all of the practices. They knew me. And then even when the team was building and then everyone was based in a certain place and I was based in one, I made sure I was quite visible to everybody, regardless of whether they are GP partners or not. So I'm always visible to reception team, secretaries, whoever that I go in and speak to and say, you know, because I was here at the start, they had a little bit of background or foundational knowledge of me. And I just make sure that I keep showing up and care. 
when I do that consistently, when I roll out changes, there are less resistance because there is more trust and more communication and more understanding. When I go into, let's say, speaking to other clinical directors, because in Lincolnshire, I was the first non-GP. Yes, because they will go, you're a pharmacist. But fortunately, I was doing quite a lot of system work, whether it's system inequalities or whether it's prescribing work or any medicine optimization work or even high level strategic work that my reputation sometimes precedes me. So they'll come to me saying, oh, I've heard of this from somebody else. And even before I took on the clinical director role, I've spoken to other clinical directors and other PCN managers that says, I've heard your team is great tell me what works. And so I think brick by brick, that with time, build the reputation in the system. But it was a lot of hard work to do that. Also, before we pressed record, I mentioned self-sabotage. You've not used the word ambitious, but you do come across as very ambitious, very Hmm. driven, very purpose-driven. So you're intentionally in some respect, and unintentionally in other respects like you've just got your head Hmm. down and you're doing the work but you're also putting yourself into situations which open you up do you find the opportunities overwhelming do you always say yes do you put yourself out there and think oh gosh I didn't realize that now I've got this how do you find that do you ever find yourself either self-sabotaging or retreating even though you are chasing what it is that you want I think more so at the start when I didn't create my own toolkit of reflection. And that has come during COVID that I had to just, I mentioned it in the podcast, where I just go back to my childhood and everyone's got baggage from the past growing up and all of that. Those were the things that myself and I'm sure everyone is carrying until you let go. So the baggage from the past and also the defense, the shield that you build up to protect yourself because that was your way of survival when you're growing up. But with time, that doesn't serve you anymore because you didn't need it to survive, but we get so used to carrying the shield. And so that really tires me down and I'm sure anybody else. And I say that to a lot of people. When you come through my door, hang your shield up, put everything down. You can just let things go in this room because you don't have to protect yourself and you are safe in this space and this is a confidential space and you open up. Without doing that, I don't think I was able to get to where I want to get to now. And it's surprising you say ambitious because I got that probably a month in after I start working and I was like freshly out of university then. And I got that comment and I was like, what, really? I don't think so. (laughs) And like you said, because some part of it is, I don't see that as ambitious because I didn't go, I want this reputation or this money. I go, I want to help this group of people or I want to make sure that people reach their full potential. And as long as I'm doing that in any circumstances, that will help. In terms of opportunity that comes to me, a lot of the times I go, ah, this title might not change a lot of what I was doing previously, but it gives me a bigger platform to reach more people. So does it help me help more people? Yes. If that's the case, I'm going to do it. You mentioned one of your passions and one of your roles is, I don't know if you use this term, but EDI champion. Yes. You mentioned that you changed the name to Connected Cultures. Yeah. Why did you change the name? So it was based on the members' feedback that they don't feel BAME reflected their identity and Connected Cultures felt more inclusive to everybody as well. 
And so it was a collective choice to change the name to Connected Cultures. What difference do you feel Connected Cultures is making in your system? We want to, because we're relaunching at end of 28th of September, we want to reach out to other colleagues who didn't have the support system in place. Because in other sectors, they have a thriving peer support network for any combination, whether it's racial, whether it's background, whether it's sexual orientation, they have something in place. Whereas in primary care, in ICB, in voluntary sector, social care sector, those are not in place as of yet. And when I speak to national colleagues about it, their first reaction was, oh, it would be great if something like this is in our ICS, for example. And so I took it as something really positive. It was started just before COVID. I think COVID sort of kickstarted and then gave it momentum. But previously, it was one group trying to do both arms at the same time, both the leadership and the peer support network. But now, upon reflection, we ensure that there is enough momentum in the leadership group where we get all the EDI leads across the system, different sectors coming together. And then we also have chief exec as our exec sponsor for the group. So we're making sure there is a top-down approach and then the peer support network ensures we have a bottom-up approach. So making sure people's voices are heard, any concerns that are raised and feeds into the leadership system, we can feed it back when we measure impact and say, this is what we put in place. And we can go back and say, you are being heard. This is what's been done differently. Let us know whether it is working or not. Is it ever not working? Because there are lots of groups that exist, Mm. but it doesn't ripple down to the front line. People are still finding themselves in situations and conversations where you're like, this is 2023. I can't believe that we're still having to Mm. have these conversations. I think a lot of the times when ideas are being generated or changes are being made, we need to be better at measuring the impact. Sometimes we go, this is what's happened from the data. It shows us, for example, ethnic minorities are not getting the sufficient training that they need or sufficient progression. So we're going to do X, Y and Z. Right, job done. But it's not as easy as that is, right, let's measure the impact. What's stopping it from going where we want it to go and how we can make it better? And you almost need a group of people, perhaps a massive group of people that constantly put this as priority on the agenda. And it's like a big company saying HR is our biggest priority, but they don't put any money or they don't put any time or effort in it. It's just words. Whereas if they invest in all of that and they are measuring impact and then speaking to the people regularly, then you can show by your actions that is your biggest priority. And so we are trying to do that better. Do you know how many people engage in your peer support network, the peer support arm? The tricky thing that we always encounter when we're dealing with overstretch workforce is a lot of the time the people that really need to go to those places don't have the time to go. (laughs) And so we decided this time when we relaunched that we will do it slightly bit differently that it wouldn't just be a Teams meeting where people come. We will also create a protected Facebook group where people can then go into it, build organic relationship and start from there. And so we will listen to the people on the ground and say, what else? What else can we do to help you facilitate that? But also to their managers and say, this is really important. What can you put in place to support them coming here? Because you can say, yeah, great, go. 
But then if that's your clinical shift and you can't leave a patient, it doesn't work. So what system needs to be in place to support people on the ground to go? You've talked about your values and your purpose. And Mm. you said that you created your toolkit of reflection around lockdown. What is in your toolkit of reflection? Journaling. Either I write it down or I draw it out one way or another. I sometimes go for some walking meditation where I just walk to clear my head. I meditate. So actually sitting down and have a thought. And that was the hardest where I have to learn to sit in with discomfort, sit in with the pain. And that was the biggest breakthrough for me. Talking about it to the people that I trust and also sometimes learning to take a step back and go, I'm going to sleep on it because I'm not a person that sleeps on things. I sort of like want it happening. And this is something that I had to learn from observing my husband, for example. He loves to sleep on things and then he'll wake up thinking, ta-da, I've got a new awakening about this topic. Sometimes it's very hard for me to do that, but I've learned to schedule in little bits of pauses throughout the day to do that, whether I am having a drink and I have two second pause when I'm doing that, whether I'm doing something and I realize I'm not breathing properly, like my breathing's erratic, right, restart the breathing, whether I pause and look at the clouds, any small pauses that I try to do throughout the day helps me have a little bit of distance and that reflection. So would you say on a, say like a stressful day, but you have periods in the year, in the week, in the month where it's it's not just a day, is it? It's a stressful period of time and you can do all of the meditation, you can do all of the journaling, you can do it all, but you still feel stressed and overwhelmed. How do you get back on an equal footing or is it just time? Nothing lasts forever. Can you offer any advice or is it just sometimes you've just got to stick with it? Sometimes, yes, I think sometimes you really got to stick with it. But the one thing that really helps me is when it's really, really stressful time and I want to solve the problem, I just break it down to what can I do now? And these are the things I can't control and letting the part that I can't control go. And that is the harder bit because I want to change everything. I want to do it now straight away or maybe yesterday. And so when I divide that and go, right, these are the things I can't control, breathe. And when I exhale, it leads with the breath. I can't do any changes. I need to learn to accept that. The things that I can control sometimes also feels overwhelming because I've got so many things that I can do, but physically I can't do all of it. And so I break it down to very manageable steps to say, right, am I doing this alone? No, you never should. Who can I trust and who can I delegate? Very easy not to do it because if we do it, we know it's going to be done well. How can I delegate properly? How do I make sure my points come across? And then how do I make it in a more achievable sense? So I'm usually quite open with the team and say, we're having a difficult time. I need all of your help. I need all hands on board. These are the things that need sorting. How do you think we can go about it? And sometimes they come up with brilliant ideas because we have good people on board. I want to say everyone wants to do a great job when they go into work. And so when the culture of the team is built on trust, empowerment and resilient, when we come across a situation like this, what I usually see happens is people step up even before I need to say it. And sometimes when I had flu and I was knocked off my feet for much longer than I anticipated and I ever was, I could see everyone stepping up where they go, right, 
this is going to happen. We're going to check in with each other because this is the culture of the team. This is what we're going to do. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And everyone took on their strengths and made it theirs and took on ownership. It wasn't great for me when I was in bed, but they kept me posted so that they wanted me not to worry. I could see people are stepping up and it was a great way to see people's potential at those times as well. Departing from this part of the conversation, but you Hmm. mentioned the culture of the team. Have you ever found yourself in a team where the culture isn't great and it's hard to influence that? Did you stay in that environment? No. (laughs) (laughs) There's the answer. Yeah. (laughs) Because usually when I go to a place, we'll all assess how safe the place is and whether that's a compassionate culture or whether we have any influence in changing. I think when you get to a place where it is really unhealthy or toxic or taking parts of you away every single day, you need to see whether it's worth you staying in that place. I know for some people financially, it's not viable. But making sure that it doesn't take away your mental well-being, because if that is gone, doesn't matter how much you want to work, you can't give 100% of yourself. And yes, usually I would step away. For people that are listening and they're quite Mm. early on in their career, what keeps you in the NHS? The hope, I want to say some part of it is blind optimism where I go, yes, we can be better. But also there is another part of the practical side where I could see the difference because I was, even before I was able to influence, I was given the space and the time to create a team from scratch. And not a lot of people have that chance to do that. And that needs to have a lot of trust. And for some people, or perhaps for some leaders, that's not their style of doing it. So when I was given that, I was almost given like a very nutritionist soil to just grow whatever that's growing there. And by doing so, they could see my potential more and more. And for people who are relatively new starting off where they think, where do I even start? I would suggest two things. One, start within in terms of what's stopping you. Is it your confidence? what's holding you back. Work on that internally. It has to come hand in hand. The other one is about the workplace. Is it a workplace that you feel safe enough to raise any concerns or maybe even ideas or suggestions? Help me understand more. Start with curiosity. Any place new, you need to understand how it works first before you go in all gung-ho and say, I'm going to change everything. So go in with curiosity and then ask, suggest, see how it goes. Maybe that doesn't work. Be open to it and build your resilience from there. But that doesn't work if you can't build your personal resilience. You should write a book. (laughs) Do you think so? You're not the first person. I said no. (laughs) Maybe I should say not yet because you're not the first person that said that. I would say if you have not listened to the Imperfect Clinician, you have to listen to the podcast. So I would direct people to that. But if people want to connect with you, where is the best place to find you? You can find me in LinkedIn. It's you and Toe on there. With the nature of the podcast, what I find is we talk about quite deep topic and we talk about, for example, how you speak to yourself and the language, how you speak to yourself. And surprisingly, even people who are, I think, quite established, we have execs coming to me and said, leave a message on LinkedIn and say, this is a brilliant episode. And I was like, okay, I'm going to screenshot this and keep this for myself. So we go into really difficult topics, but I also want to show people this is not an easy journey, but also they are not alone. 
So what I tend to find is when you search for The Imperfect Clinician, we've got a website, we have a Facebook page, people tend to connect to us directly instead of doing it publicly in those domains. So feel free to message us on the website. You can click and record a message if you want us to. Sometimes we get lots of questions from different people from different countries, and we try to ask questions to change perspective because I'm not here to solve your problem, but I'm here to perhaps some of my experience you can relate to but also the questions that we are talking about and our conversation will allow you to have a bit of a step back change your perspective of the situation and go actually I will try this way and I feel a little bit more in control because the last thing you want is when you feel I can't do anything and so you feel really frustrated but if you feel that I can do one little thing whether that one little thing is changing you or changing your behavior at work it's still one step that you can take. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five-star review. I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.